when we first told the story of Green Acres Music Hall in 2018, its legend was set, and its shadow had grown long in the years since it closed nearly two decades before. Since those three episodes were published, people still talk about Green Acres, at least as much, if not more, than before. I come across younger folks who say things like, I wish I could have been there, and older folks who say things like, I wish we could have a Green Acres again. While the truth about Green Acres lies in the past, the myth of it is alive and well, and looks to continue far into the future. It will not be another Green Acres, but many artists who played there are set to perform at the inaugural Earl Scruggs Music Festival on Labor Day weekend in 2022, and that got me thinking about revisiting those three episodes on the Acres from years ago. In that series, Green Acres alumni Bela Fleck, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Darren Aldridge, and Acoustic Syndicate spoke with us at length, and they are part of the 33-act lineup at the Earl Scruggs Music Festival. That, coupled with the fact that I still come across people who ask about the original Green Acres episodes, gave me the idea to go back to those original interviews to revisit highlights from them and feature more of those conversations that were previously left out. You'll hear from those artists as well as the one person who is most responsible for putting Green Acres on the map, the little king himself, Steve Metcalf. Plus, comments from a whole host of others who were there back in the day, like John Cowan, Carol Rifkin, Sandy Carlton, the late Ed Stokes, and Mike Lynch, among others. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is our episode revisiting Green Acres Music Hall. compare Green Acres to, I go around and I see a lot of shows no. and festivals. <laughs> you can't. It's its own. Oh, yes. The bathrooms were top-notch. Not. We, we <laughs> Do we have bathrooms? We, we got remember. our first rider. We didn't know what a rider was on a contract. It said uh, all these things they had to have. And I said, now nah, we're going to have to get some running water in the women's bathroom. They had a wood stove that was the biggest wood stove I'd ever seen in my life. It was big enough to put trees in it. The guiding rules that we always had were all rules are temporarily suspended and be nice or leave. So we move it outside so we can get more people. And then all of a sudden, hey, we need it bigger than bigger. And then it snowed one year and the snow of about 12 inches Hmm. collapsed the top of the Nile Dome into the bottom of the Nile Dome. And so here you've got, we thought, well, it's all over. It's all over. I mean, we're done. Green Acres was so unique in that it was far enough away from anything urban that you almost felt like you were in another another country when you were there. And you were amongst a large crowd of hundreds of like-minded people. Long live Green Acres. Green Acres is dead. Long live... Green Acres. (laughs) (laughs) 
Southern Songs and Stories is part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media. Osiris creates music podcasts and events to help music fans deepen their connection to the music they love with all of their shows at OsirisPod.com. Osiris works in partnership with Jam Bass, which connects music fans to the music they love and empowers them to go see live music. Capsule versions of Southern Songs and Stories are produced for broadcast on WNCW by me, Corey Askew. More information about this and other podcasts from Grassroots Radio, WNCW at WNCW.org. Let's jump in the time machine and set the controls to go back many decades to a location in the foothills of western North Carolina, Bostick, in Rutherford County. It was an unlikely place for this now almost mythical tale to begin, where amateurs from the hill country of North Carolina launched a music venue in a cinder block building that doubled as an auction house with no phone and a bathroom with no sink. Self-taught and DIY all the way, Nevertheless, their venue eventually wound up being courted by the likes of Garth Brooks, Allison Krauss, and Merle Haggard, and put on performances by Rodney Crowell, John Hartford, Tony Rice, and Doc Watson, to name a few. The careers of bands like Newgrass Revival and Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, who started our episode with a live version of Sinister Minister from May 18, 1991, got a big boost at Green Acres, where they and many other high-caliber artists lit the spark for countless local musicians early in their musical journeys. All because two impresarios, Nal Cuthbertson and Steve Metcalf, wanted to have a place where people could enjoy live music in the middle of nowhere. The first three episodes of our Green Acres series on Southern Songs and Stories totaled almost three hours, pulling from 15 separate interviews totaling over five hours and included 19 songs or portions of songs played live at the venue. We got those from original board tapes that Steve Metcalf loaned us, as well as from the site archive.org, where you can find many more performances from Green Acres in the midst of hundreds of thousands of other shows there. Those episodes detailed the history of the Acres over its four-decade span, from its inception as a spot for dancing and country music to its embrace of bluegrass and newgrass, to the addition of an outdoor stage and larger and larger crowds in later years. In those first three episodes, you can hear about how Niall Cuthbertson started Green Acres, how Steve Metcalf became its frontman, and you get a lot of context on external forces at play in the music scene locally and nationally in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. In this episode, however, we are focusing more on conversations with artists and mostly let them tell the history themselves. Here's Bela Fleck talking with myself and Steve Metcalf about his time playing at the Acres, beginning with his band, New Grass Revival. We always played at our best there. That's the thing I always remembered, is we would play, we would go, it would be a cold freezing night, they'd have that hot stove, we'd be burning up next to the stove, and people would just go absolutely ballistic, and they would soak it all up, whatever we did, the weirder the better, there was no... You know, it wasn't like you had to like do your slick show or your, you know, or your simpler songs. You could you could do the the wilder stuff, and you could go as far as you wanted, and they would just lap it up. So it made you feel really good to play there. On the surface, it seems so unlikely that Green Acres would have had the run that it did with artists that come there like you. What did you think at first about going into this little tiny spot out in the middle of Rutherford County? Did it seem like oh, that was completely odd? I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I'm, 
playing bluegrass. You know, I, I was I'm a New Yorker that moved to the South to play the banjo. So I was hoping to see some things like that. And plus knowing that it wasn't far from where Earl Scruggs came from, it's the closest I'd been till today. Uh, now right right now we're at Don Gibson Theater and, and Earl Scruggs Center is is in my in, in my next hour. I get to go check that out and see what that's all about. I've been really dying to do that. But but anyway, no, I'm a big fan of Earl Scruggs and and North Carolina is full of great banjo playing and I was excited to check it out, you know, see what was what the what what everyone was talking about. So but when we got there it was just so relaxed. Everything was so easy and Steve and Donna made us at home in their and their home and we would stay with them and we would hang out late and party and we all became just really fast friends. It was very sweet. Can you tell about the song Yeehaw Factor and how that came around? <clears throat> yeah. Well, Sam would always talk about the Yeehaw Factor. He'd say, in fact, I, I, I'm pretty sure he would have said before we got here, he would say, Bela, there is a Yeehaw Factor here. You're going to, this is not, you know, your typical situation. And I was like, great. You know, I could tell he loved it. It wasn't like he was saying, you're going to hate this. It was like, but it's, this is, con- you know, this is country. This is a different thing. So, um, so I always remembered him saying that. And when the Flectones came around and we started playing, at Green Acres, which, by the way, was a little like of a traumatic. I was afraid. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing bringing them there, bringing the guys there um, after Newgrass. You know, everybody's favorite band had split up, and now I was playing with these guys doing this weird music. I wasn't sure it was the right thing, but it ended up being fantastic. After this, I think the first set got kind of a sort of a curious, muted response. Then everybody went out to the parking lot, and when they came back, um, all of a sudden everybody thought we were the greatest thing ever. You, uh, yeah. you remember the time that you, you I think y'all were in the blue bread truck back then and y'all pulled into my driveway for a show and you four stars walked off and then Jerry Douglas, y'all had picked him up as you were leaving Nashville. He just said, yeah, I'll go. And so he came and then they did a Green Acres show and then the next morning we took off to Wilkesboro for the first Merle Watson's music festival on the flatbed trucks and yeah. sitting on hay bales. Right, the one that Earl Scruggs came yeah, to right. with, yeah. uh, with uh, Marty yeah. Stewart. Yeah, the first right. one. And and me and Sam and Tony, Tony yeah. Rice, I think it was one of the first on stage appearances I'd had with Tony yeah. and Sam and that John Cowan played right. bass for yeah. that one. Yeah. And I, I get, I'd, was Mark O'Connor there that yeah. year? Yeah. yeah, I've seen some video from that one. Yeah, that was pretty exciting times, really. Everybody was just exploding into their, into their trip. But those places where it was casual would bring out a special energy from all of those musicians, where you could just relax, and drink and, lizard liquor. Yeah, I remember uh, we pulled a, a, a trick on Pat Flynn, who is squeamish about the lizard liquor that you had around your place, and we we got him to to eat the lizard by mistake once, but. <laughs> <laughs> I almost don't want to ask, but I have to. Where'd you to. get that stuff? Down, down uh, in Mexico? Phil and, Phil and Gay Johnson brought it to me from a tour in Singapore. Mm. All right, here we go. Thank you. 
In 1972, Newgrass Revival came along and shook up the bluegrass world with its eclectic approach to a form that was defined by Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys a quarter of a century before them, and that was a bit of Gensing Sullivan. With founding member Sam Bush alongside later Newgrass Revival member Bela Fleck at Greenacres in August of 95. Here's Sam Bush. Well, it was, you know, it was a, it was a major great gig for us. Uh, but I mean, you know, just positive things happened out of it. I mean, one year for, uh, for Halloween, we were coming over, we did more than one Halloween show there. And, uh, I think John Callen came as Ralph Emery one year, you know, I was always Samuel de Lobo, the, the, uh, werewolf, uh, matador. And, uh, anyhow, we, we had, we had so much fun playing. So one year, uh, we just called Jerry Douglas and said, Hey man, we're going to run over to Green Acres and play a Halloween show. You want to come with me or come with us? And, uh, and he did. So he just rode over with us, played at Green Acres. I believe he was in a, uh, a nun outfit that night. I think he and Bela both had nun outfits on. And uh, which was great because Bela wrote a tune. We used to play called Nuns for Nixon. It was featured in the show. <laughs> but everybody would be in costume. It was great. It was just a, a giant party. And uh, I don't think there's any place where we ever, you know, felt more one with the audience than we did at Green Acres. It's neat to trace the, the evolution of not only Green Acres, but how it in the whole world changed over those years. It's it's funny to think back to that era before the internet and how you can have everything at the touch of a fingertip nowadays. And, you know, finding Green Acres was, was your first hurdle. Finding Green Acres was always difficult if you'd been there 10 times. Uh, and and, uh, and I, I can remember, you know, Steve mailing, you know, hundreds of mailing lists. You know, now, of course, we have the internet and that's your automatic mailing list right now, you know, that everybody can see anytime. And, uh, so yes, you don't have to go to the post office and mail flyers anymore, but boy, Steve did. And, and, uh, that's no accident that that helped us build an audience in North Carolina. So I would print these off and I'd put them in my back pocket. And as I would go to festival to festival, club to club, I would say, hey, man, you, you understand it. Take one of these flyers. And, and after 20, I mean, 10, 20, 15 years, these people who I said, you're special. Take one of these. And these people would all show up at one time in the middle of where the heck is Green Acres. Yeah. And they were all there. And it, it, it was like a... a a mystical experience, to tell the truth. It really was. Yeah. Yeah, I'm proud to have had anything to do with it. That was Steve Metcalf following Sam Bush. Here's Jerry Douglas. Well, let's see. The first time I played there was with Newgrass Revival. The day before we came here to play the first uh, Merle Fest. 
and uh, we played here on a flatbed truck that day. But the night before, I had played at Green Acres for my very first time, and it was uh, it was a, an amazing experience in itself. Uh, you know, it was. <laughs> I, I've known Steve Metcalf for a long, long time, who was uh, sort of overseeing the whole Green Acres deal there. But uh, I know Newgrass played there a lot, so going in there with them was uh, was a sure thing. That was a different time, and the music world in playing out was a far different experience for concert goers, and I believe really everybody involved. There was there was less going on in a lot of ways. But how how did that factor into? what you were doing at the time or maybe your career, was there any lasting impact? Well, I was, at the time, at that point in my career, I was I was uh, do, just doing mostly sessions in Nashville, playing on country records and all kinds of records. And uh, it was nice to get out of town for a weekend and uh, go play some live music for live, you know, breathing, breathing human bodies. <laughs> and. Uh, and Green Acres was was a sort. I didn't I didn't get it at first. I didn't understand why we uh, went inside and there was no one in there. And then I came outside and the whole parking lot was full, but everybody was sitting in their truck, in there. And later on, what I figured out was they were all getting ready for the concert. And when they came in, when they would get come out of their cars and go into the building. They were primed for the for the music. Talked with John and Bela about the freedom that that venue allowed. The audience was of a kind of a different stripe. They were accepting of so much, and the the locality being out there, it just seemed like there was a lot more that you could stretch. I think there were those people that lived out there that went to Green Acres on a regular basis. They they weren't the regular concert goer that you would see at a festival or at an auditorium or someplace like that. They didn't go to see their music in in, a, in big places. They like they preferred smaller venues and where they could let go and and you know there weren't so many rules and that that fed the band as well mm -hmm. i mean it it would give us uh we'd give a different performance because the audience was different and you know it was everybody was a little crazy in there and and uh it made us crazy and, and it just yeah, anything went you know we 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 tried things we were much more experimental in in the music because we weren't playing in a in a in a auditorium or someplace you know we weren't doing the same show we did the night before and it wasn't groundhog day we didn't have to go around i mean i've played arenas you know so much of my life that i where you go and look for your dressing room that's the first thing you do that day and that's enough of a chore and uh the place it looks exactly like the place you played the day before and you know there's uh the 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 hockey rink, you know, there's ice under the under the wood or a basketball court or something under there, and in uh, the Green Acres was sofas, a wood stove, and you brought your own beer or whatever you were going to drink, and nobody told you what to do. I mean, everybody they were they were all very pleasant, 
great manners. Listen, they would be quiet and listen to the music when it was that kind of music. If it was a rowdy kind of music, they were rowdy, and that's that fed, that fed the band. It was, it, it, it was it was a perfect situation. There weren't as many options then for venues. You had to travel, especially there. You had to travel an hour or two hours to see much. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You had to go to Asheville. You had to go to Charlotte or Hickory to see to see uh, live music. And, you know, unless you knew somebody who was playing on their back porch that night, and that's what those people did. And that's that's what I come from. You know, so I I totally understand that mentality. If you know, if there's nothing great going on on stage somewhere, you don't want to go. You just don't feel like going out. You you get out on the back porch and call a couple of people and make your own music. <laughs> I, I, I have great memories of playing there, and uh, and I I wish there were more places like that, but, you know, there just aren't. It was a very special place. Probably 50 Saturdays out of a year, every Saturday night. Some, a lot of Saturdays when I wanted to be at New Orleans or Telluride or wherever, I was stuck at the Green Acres Music Hall because I did a show Saturday night for 20 years. You know? Behind every successful man is a really surprised woman. And I always remember that. But behind Steve Metcalf was Donna. You know, she passed quite a few years ago. But she was charming and tolerant. She was very involved in it. I always remember his children being there and running errands and doing things and being part of it. It was very much a family operation. You know, it's kind of funny. It was pretty well, pretty well accepted, except the bluegrass people hated us because we, we electrified bluegrass. They hated that. They would not come. And all of a sudden, right in front of the stage, some guy just fell out of the rafters right in front of us. We went, man, they're literally hanging by the rafters in here. Fitz asked Nile, he said, out of all these bands that have came through and played at this, this place, who would be your favorite band? He said, and I thought about it for a second, and he said, I guess it'd probably be my band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nile and the Country Drifters, I got to put a plug in for them, for sure. He had a heart of gold, but uh, you did, probably didn't want to be on the wrong side of him. But uh, I remember uh, just him giving you a big hug w was painful. <laughs> he he uh, he worked for years as a uh, in the pulpwood uh, industry, and that's back when they were carrying five foot lengths of logs on their shoulders. This was a lot was done by hand, and yeah, he was just a he was a Paul Bunyan. There's no doubt about it. That was Mike Lynch, who played guitar in Brushy Creek, one of the very first bands to play bluegrass at Green Acres in the late 1970s. Following Brian McMurray of Acoustic Syndicate, Sandy Carlton, who as a founding member of the group Mama Said, played many times at Greenacres also, following WNCW's Carol Rifkin and Steve Metcalf at the top. I found out about Greenacres in the mid-1990s and remember seeing bands like Snake Oil Medicine Show and Acoustic Syndicate there, among others. My memory is fuzzy, but I'm pretty sure I went there to see one of Acoustic Syndicate's first shows with a young mandolin player named Darren Aldridge in their lineup. Here's Darren, followed by Acoustic Syndicate. The first time I went to Green Acres, it was just a, a quite of an experience. Just the sound was good, the, the atmosphere was good, a great crowd, 
And I believe the CD release party for the Syndicate's uh, first CD was the first time I'd played there. And uh, it was just awesome, man. And every time we went back, you know, then I got to go see a lot of different bands. I saw the Sam Bush band there the first time they came, and, uh, and Cowan was in the band, Daryl Scott and Larry Adamanouk was playing. And, you know, and that just changed my life seeing that at you know 19 years old and it was just a, a wonderful time i know steve and niles did so much for the music for this state for the whole u.s i mean everywhere that you can go we travel we always will bring up a new uh, you know a, a green acre story a new grass story and uh, it's everybody's heard of it and it's just a wonderful time it's hard to describe green acres if you haven't been there uh, it's just really difficult to do uh it's there was a mass collision of two worlds going on right there. It was uh, the rural country folk that lived out there, and, and of course, Niall Cuthbertson, the, the guy who actually owned the property. And then <laughs> you had Steve Metcalf, and then all, all the uh, mayhem and insanity and just but this sort of free spirit living that, that, that followed him around. And uh, those two worlds kind of came together there in uh, some sort of symbiotic relationship for somehow or another. I don't know exactly how that worked out, but sometimes it didn't work out so well. I mean, we had some troubles out there, but um, it was just a kind of a... Bela Fleck used to say that, uh, you know, welcome to Green Acres where all rules are temporarily suspended. And that's the kind of the way it was, you know. What happened at Green Acres generally stayed at Green Acres. And it was, it was just... But most of the time, people just looked out for one another. And it was sort of a family communal atmosphere out there. And people would come on... Wednesday night for a Friday night show and start setting up, and uh, but it was just a it's kind of a, a marvelous experience in, in sociology. <laughs> it really was. I mean, try to imagine if you can like a giant wooden pavilion in the middle of the field, and underneath it is all these old timey school desks with the tables still on them, mixed with church pews. And the stage itself was like kind of half rotting it definitely leaked like when it rained which it often did it definitely came through you never knew whether you're going to get electrocuted or not when you're actually playing the place mm -hmm. uh, north carolina flags in the background you know american flag in the you know all in the back along the back of the stage and it was just as rustic and rural as you could possibly imagine school bus off to the side which served as the green room slash medcalf's king headquarters you know <laughs> and then all around that people would just pull up their cars and camp they'd, they'd tuck up in the woods they'd pitch tents in the middle of the field and uh you know the the guiding rules that we always had were all rules are temporarily suspended mm -hmm. and be nice or leave yeah, yeah. Be nice. and then you had the uh, and on top of that you had uh, like piles of shag carpet on the stage and like some like i don't know if it was eight layers if it was uh dave grisman or i can't remember which performer came through and one time said the world's most carpeted stage <laughs> i mean nothing was level remember that <laughs> and it was damp I saw Tony Rice in there one night, and it was just absolutely. Paul Setzer was running sound, and it, you know he was an amazing sound man, and uh, he was just a great engineer. And he had that room rocking, man. And, and I was that's that's the best I ever actually got to sit down and just hear and watch Tony play. Uh, he was it was just Tony and like two other people. It, I can't even remember who it was, but anyway, uh, getting to your point, yeah. Now who was a postman carried the mail uh, on a rural route uh he got in like you said the auctioneering business and he would hold those auctions out there and i went out there a couple of times and so whatever it was kind of like one of those things where whatever didn't get sold 
just stayed at Green Acres. <laughs> and there was just tons of the oddest kind of stuff you've ever seen in your life. I mean, the night I went to an auction, he was auctioning off a hula hoop at one point. A hula hoop, yeah. <laughs> I believe that. But uh, but that that's where all the collections came from, the, all of the church pews and the desks and the uh, just whatever, you know. And now it was old school too. Now this, you're talking. We're talking about a guy uh, who was uh, then in his seventies, uh, who was a mountain of a man. He was a huge dude. He was, he was probably what six foot four or three maybe, yeah. three hundred plus pounds, and just a massive uh, force of nature. <laughs> and he was very confident man. He was just completely, totally confident. Like Brown was saying, you know, he, he didn't lack for confidence. But uh, it was. He was just a, a, always a pleasure to be around. We heard heard about it and heard legend of it and never knew. And but what's beautiful about it in a lot of ways is how nurturing it was for that entire scene, that whole you know the newgrass thing, and all of the different acoustic musics that were coming through at that period. Matty was creating an environment where everybody could actually really express themselves, play, develop, and and every single one of those shows I ever played there, it felt. It just felt humbling to even be there in the presence of what it was. I mean, you were describing hearing, I agree with that 100%. To, hearing Tony play, and even I felt like watching Tony play that he felt the same way that because it was such an intimate thing that you played on a different level. You've experienced music on a different level, both as an artist and as an audience member. And um, Eddie Adcock, he would just play amazing shows out there. Um, and this goes on and on. Goose Creek Symphony. Yeah. Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Fiji Mariners. Colonel Bruce Hampton and the Fiji Mariners <laughs> on the inside, yeah. On the inside. Yeah. 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 Larry Keel. Yeah, Larry. Norman Blake. It it was a destination place before the term destination place ever came about in the music business, uh, in my opinion. Uh, once once you had a Green Acres under your belt, things were never going to be the same for you, whether you're a musician or a fan or a neighbor of Green Acres, uh, but um, <laughs> it was it was a destination place. There's so many destination places now, but that was the first destination place in my memory of, of, of that term being used in this, in this industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Green Acres. Hey, remember this is a family affair. Let's respect whoever's next, sitting next to you, who's camped next to you, the neighbors next door. And hey, let me tell you, I'm serious right now. I've said this before, but still, after all these years, my favorite band, Acoustic Syndicate!
a bit of Acoustic Syndicate at Green Acres with The Ride from August 17, 2002, following a conversation with band members Steve, Brian, and Fitz McMurray, Jay Sanders, and manager Billy Herring. As you heard, Tony Rice played some magnificent sets at Green Acres. Another legendary alumnus of the Acres who has since passed on is John Hartford. Here's Bela Fleck. I mean, John Hartford used to talk to me about... Um how he'd put together his set list because you know every place wasn't green acres and sometimes he'd be playing at a state fair or in a library somewhere or or even in a church so he said he would what he'd do is he'd he'd do a song for him for for the audience he told me i'll do one for them uh, and then i'll do one for me and if they like the one i did for me i'll do another one for me and if they don't like the one i did for me i'll do another one for them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's Makes how he sense. would make his set list because I asked him, man, you're such a, a consummate entertainer. You know, I always love how you just have a pulse on the audience and how, how far to push it. And that's just, just a simple, simple plan that always worked. So a lot of times you're doing the songs for them. That means doing the hit, doing the, so for him it would be Gentle on My Mind or, you know, or Aeroplane or whatever it is people knew that they really wanted to hear. But they, once in a while he'd get a room where he could do anything he wanted. He could play his crooked fiddle tunes. Or you know, crazy tunes he hadn't played in a long time, or, or just an old country song, or whatever he wanted to do, you know. But at Green Acres, you could really follow your bliss and go off into the deep end. And you know, you get around to playing stuff people wanted to hear, and and you wouldn't mind playing your hits for that audience either, because you could also um, screw around with them, and they would enjoy that too. I was saying earlier when I got to enjoy Abigail's clog dancing and, mm-hmm. and yodeling and you playing along with her that board reminded me of how nervous I'd get when John Hartford would come to Green Acres because I had to go obtain a piece of plywood that was double A on both sides you don't have that everywhere and then he would want two salt shakers and I'd put the board down he'd put a Barkus Berry is that it? Yeah, a, a, pick up. A pick up mm-hmm. and then he'd start pouring salt on the Board and then he'd start dancing and a fiddling and a dancing and a fiddling and uh, he played my birthday party there one time and did did old Steve Metcalf had a farm. <laughs> I hope somebody has that on a cassette tape and will send it to me sometime. And you put the salt down so that you get the slides of your feet, not just the pop, you know, the bang, but you get the. And, cause, and I know about that because we, cause we recorded that song uh, Steve's talking about called, called Harlan um, uh, in, in my basement. And by the end of the session, the, the whole basement was just full of, of salt dust, the whole studio. And I was kind of worrying, not worrying, but wondering what it was going to do to the gear. But eventually it all settled down and we wiped it off and went back to business. But, um, yeah, because nobody asked for things back then. A, a bluegrass band or anyone from that world having a rider was unheard of and the demands. So, so he terrorized a lot of people with that simple little piece of plywood that he needed to do a good show. He just needed a, a, a solid piece of plywood. Was it three, three by three? Is that all it was? I think I so. Think, yeah. And it had to be just this right thing. But, it, yeah, it terrorized a lot of promoters. The, you're talking about the rider thing. I'd never seen a rider in the beginning days. And so the first real rider I got was from Norman and Nancy Blake. And I'm reading all this, what they had, what they, what they need, what they don't allow in this. And I told Miles, I said, now I think we're going to have to put some running water in the ladies' room. <laughs> That's when Nile built the four-seater out, outhouses. That was a great step for mankind. <laughs> yes.
The Green Acres story is truly still being told. It lives in everyone who was there, and echoes are heard in recordings on Steve's record label, Little King. Like almost everyone I talked to who went to Green Acres, it's hard not to feel like we didn't fully realize then how special that time and place really was. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to follow Southern Songs and Stories on your podcast platform of choice. And once you're there, take a moment and give us a top rating and, if possible, a review. Giving us a top rating is super easy, and ratings and reviews go a long way towards bumping us up in the rankings, which puts this series and the artists we profile in front of more music fans like you. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of Osiris Media, with all the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. A big thanks to Steve Metcalf for opening his home and letting me rummage through his extensive photos and cassette tape collection of Green Acres archives, and to all the folks who gave interviews. There are many more artists and people interviewed in the original three episodes, which are still available on southernsongsandstories.com, as well as podcast platforms everywhere. Thanks to Corey Askew for producing the radio adaptations of this series heard on Public Radio WNCW, and to our former intern Joshua Ming, who wrote and performed our theme songs. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it.